With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Julio Rodriguez, and this is the Lookout Landing Podcast. Love won't get you high as this. Drugs won't get you high as this. Fame won't get you high as this. Chains won't get you high as this. Juice won't get you high as this. Crew won't get you high as this. Hate won't get you high as this. Levitate, 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 levitate. Uh. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Lookout Landing Podcast. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Uh, my name is Matthew Robertson, host of this show. You can find me on Twitter at mrobertson22. And today I have a very special guest who I'm really excited to talk to. It is the author of Baseball's Leading Lady, a biography of Effa Manley, set to be released in January 2021. The one and only Andrea Williams is here. Andrea, what's going on? I don't think I've ever been the one and only, so I'm excited about that. But no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm excited to be here, excited to talk to you and talk about Effa. Yeah, it's a little uh, interviewer trick. The one and only makes every guest <laughs> feel very special. I'm feeling really good right now. I'm not going to lie. I feel great about it. Wonderful. So I guess before we get into your book and sort of our larger conversation, I feel obligated to ask everyone this year, just like, how are you doing? Like, what's the vibe in your life? How are you hanging in amid a pandemic? Yeah, um, pretty well, honestly. I mean, I'm a writer, so I spend a lot of time at home anyway, um, probably not writing as much as I should in, in most cases. Uh, my agent would definitely attest to that. But um, <laughs> I am definitely kind of used to being at home and hunkering down. I have four kids who we were homeschooling anyway. My husband is a musician and producer and we have a studio at our home. So he's used to being here. So I mean, obviously, it is it is hard to watch, um, you know, what is happening. And you know, the virus itself is certainly you know, I've, I've got kids and like they get scared and you want them to be aware of what's happening in the world, but you don't want them to be so fearful. And so all of those things kind of, you know, trying to trying to mitigate or temper all of that all the time is is definitely a heavy emotional lift. But um, honestly, I, I'm doing pretty well. Honestly, I feel that um, it's been it's been a good year in terms of being able to focus on some projects. Um, if for those who follow me on Twitter, um, I talk a lot about country music and 
um, some of the issues that come up in this EFA book about white supremacy and exclusion and those kinds of things um, are still happening in country music right now. And so I've been, you know, talking about that. So basically picked up another beat, if you will. And so that it's been kind of cool to get in on those conversations and just really seeing nationally what is happening around, you know, social justice and people asking questions and talking about things in a way that um, I don't think I've really seen in my generation, this kind of earnest, yes, let's do something, let's let's start. And um, I think it's, you know, there, there's always this question of like, well, when will we know that we've made it? And I don't, I don't really know the answer to that, um, but I think a, a lot of us, you know, a lot of black folk are like, okay, how long is this moment gonna last? Like, is this like a 15 minute thing or like a three or four hour thing? So, um, but it, it's definitely, it's definitely been good to see across industry, um, you know, people, like I said, having those conversations and really being willing to consider disrupting the status quo because the status quo is racist. So, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And how much of the book did you write during the pandemic? Like, was were you done by the time that like things really started to get bad or like how, what did you have to like hunker down and finish the last part of it as the world was crumbling like what was the timeline like in relation to finishing the book and the pandemic happening yeah i was done done like initially this book was supposed to be slated for it was going to come out in september of 20 and lots of COVID stuff um it impacted the the book publishing industry like it did so many others and so i got pushed to january 21 um, but yeah, it was, it was in the bed by then for sure. Like I just, I want to say in like January, February, we just finished up everything with like photos and captions and all that stuff. Um, in notes, bibliography was like the last, very last, last thing. And all of that was done by the time we really got into this thing. But I did have a whole other manuscript that I wrote and just finished edits on at the beginning of this week that I can't even really talk about because publishing is so weird and they make you keep all the secrets. So um, I believe that book will be announced early in 21, like January or February, something like that. Um, but yeah, that was definitely, it was definitely, um, I had to travel before I started writing the book and I, I traveled at the end of February. And so it was like a couple weeks after I got back, it's like everything just shut down. Um, so yes, I did have the experience of writing a book during the pandemic, which was was wild. But again, it, you know, I'm a writer. I don't think I've, I don't think there's ever a comfortable time to write. So it yeah. is what it is. <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, I remember last time I talked to an author is uh, Emily Nemens, who wrote a book called The Cactus League, and yes. I was talking to her about like, is like, are you gonna associate? the release of this book with the pandemic forever. And she was like, Oh my God, like, I guess probably like hadn't even really thought of it. But I feel like for me, I mean, like my memories of this year don't include publishing a book, but like so many of them have been contextualized in such a weird way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be kind of impossible to like divorce them from the memory of like, Oh yeah, that was when I couldn't do literally anything else like that. Right. I did that cause I was out of options. Right. Right. And I think it's important, you know, I have friends who have had like major hit major career milestones. So I think there's that too. It's that I think it has forced us to look for that silver lining, to look at the bright side so that you're not kind of wallowing in despair constantly. And I think for a lot of people, there are legit great things to be happy about. And there's that, you know, well, do you do you talk about the things that you're excited about in 2020? Because it's 2020. Um, but yeah, I think I think for me, um, again, so that I'm not, you know, being a writer is such an emotional thing, the creative process. And so for me, like I can't afford to like trash a whole year and like get really down about stuff. So it's absolutely okay. What are the great things about this year that I can take and remember going forward, even though, yeah, it was kind of crappy. It was a weird time. You know, I, I wonder though, like what for younger people, like for my kids, like I wonder how they're gonna think about this. Cause it is, I can't imagine going through this at like 11. That's a lot. So Oh my God. I know. Yeah. I, f I feel for the kids most of all, like I'm mostly fine, you know, like I can handle, I can like keep myself alive and, you know, in yeah. decent spirit, but for children, yeah. We're like, you mentioned at the very beginning, how there's also like that you don't want to make them so afraid of life, you know, but also like tell them yeah. like, Hey, this is important. Like we got to find a middle ground between like living and also being 
safe and making sure like, that they understand the magnitude of all this, which seems yeah. impossible. So I guess I feel for the parents and the kids. Thank you. I appreciate measure. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's get into... A little bit of background first. Um, obviously, you just finished a book on Effa Manley, a baseball legend. So I want to know, like, when did you take an interest in baseball? Like, where are you from? Who's your your team, if you have one? Like, what happened in your life that made you so interested in baseball? Yeah, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and was a Royals fan. But, I mean, it was hard to be a Royals fan in the 90s. Let's just be honest. Like, we were post-George Brett. We were pre, like, that kind of... Johnny Damon, Jermaine Dyer, resurgence. Um, and so honestly, the team was, was, my team was the Mariners. Like I was so excited when I got this interview request. Cause I mean, like Ken Griffey Jr., Randy Johnson, Joey Cora, Jay Buhner. I was so excited when Alex Rodriguez got there and then he took the money and ran to Texas. But, oh my gosh. And it was so hard being in Kansas city. Like we had TBS, so there were lots of Braves games and we had WGN. So there were lots of Cub game, Cubs games. And I was like, oh, my, every week it was like, oh, please let the Mariners be on Sunday Night Baseball this week so I can watch. So um, I didn't get to see a ton of Mariners games, but they were, like, by far my favorite team. Um, So did you, like, growing up then, did you ever consider baseball to be, like, a thing that you could be a part of? Like, obviously, as a woman, there's, like, barriers that also Effa Manley had to deal with. But, like, for you, were you ever playing baseball or were you, like, just kind of – watching thinking like oh one day it would be cool to somehow get involved in a certain type of way yeah I did I played softball um but pretty quickly I mean high school I knew that I was more interested on the biz about the business side of things more interested in the business side of things I should say um and so I decided to study sport management uh went to Georgia Southern University studied sport management and the goal at the time was to become the general manager, the first female general manager of a major league baseball team. And I really, really wanted to work for a small market team, like the Royals, like where I grew up. Um, I was really adamant, you know, like whatever, you know, how, however I got into the industry, you know, if it was on the marketing side or something like that, I was like, no, I am not marketing the New York Yankees. Like they don't need the help. Like I just, I just had these audacious goals about this being this like benevolent creature in the world of pro sports, which is kind of like, it's interesting. But then I got a job um, right out of undergrad at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And that was where I was first introduced to Effa story and what she was doing in, um, in the Negro Leagues in the 1930s and 40s running with her husband Abe, the Newark Eagles, but then also being playing a really big role in um, the Negro National League, which her team was a part of. And so it was like, okay, maybe this wasn't. Now, by that point, I think I had kind of, yeah, you know, I don't really know if I want to work in, in pro baseball, um, but she definitely um, – what she was doing and how she approached her work, that it's not just sports, that this is a platform to, you know, benefit the black community, to give black people jobs and, and security and all those things. I was like, okay, I can, I can get with this. Like it definitely spoke to, you know, who I was and who I am as a person that this, you know, the work that we're doing is not just work that we are to really be good citizens. Sure. Yeah. And so you just wrote a whole book on her, obviously. So you have, you know, all of the details, probably so many things that didn't even make the book. But I'm curious because I'm sure you've also had to do this in real life recently. Like, how would you explain who Effa Manley is to someone who's never heard of her? Like if someone asked you like, oh, who is that? What was she famous for? What did she do? What have you been saying? Yeah. So I always lead with the fact that she is the only woman inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I think that we there is still such a lack of knowledge about the Negro Leagues and their significance. So even saying that, oh, well, she owned a team, like she ran a team as a woman in the 1930s and 40s, I think people on the surface understand that significance, but because they don't really know the Negro Leagues, it's not like they don't they don't view it in the same way, you know, that if I said, okay, well, she owned and ran the Brooklyn Dodgers. Like I don't think in that it just in that pure like team executive context, she people would associate even if they knew her story would would place her in the same category as a branch Ricky, which is unfortunate. So then, you know, I have to I have to lead with like the women's empowerment thing. And yeah, she's the only woman inducted in a Cooperstown. So it's 
kind of like, whoa, okay, so this is, this is for real. So yeah, that is that. I, I'm glad you asked that because I am super tactical in how I do that to make sure that people really get um, how important a figure she was. Right, and the Hall of Fame thing is so like I go down such a weird thought process when I. And like confronted by that idea that she's the only woman in there because you're like, wow, like that's first of all, like that's amazing. Good for her. You know, all that yeah. like she yeah. deserves it. And then you're like, well, surely there has to be another woman who is like worthy of it. And then you think like, well, there haven't been that many women who have even had the chance. You know, it's that's, not like there's women yes. who are like snubbed, you know, the way players are We're like, oh, you just fell short. It's like there's not really a whole lot of women who even would have like a case at all you know because there's been so much just barriers for them exactly and i think that speaks to the importance of you know what the the importance of the negro leagues like what they did what that meant and what we lost when we lost the negro leagues um because a hundred percent if the negro leagues hadn't existed even if effa would have still been passionate about baseball and wanted to work in baseball to your point she would not have been able to build a career that would even qualify her that would even have the voters remotely considering her career and her um you know ability to be inducted so yeah it was you know what what they built um effa and the other the other owners these these really savvy vision-minded business people um was critically important because it didn't just provide baseball to fans or allow black players to get on a baseball diamond when when white teams and white leagues wouldn't let them. It really created this ecosystem that also provided jobs for black coaches. It provided opportunities for black executives like EFA. Um, I mean, the bus drivers, the secretaries, the public, like these were black people that got to work in a space that if not for the Negro Leagues as an organization, as an entity, would not have been able to. Yeah, and you think about, too, like now there's a heightened conversation around women in baseball after Kim Ang was hired by the Marlins to be their GM. But then you also, I mean, so you like, you know, I don't want to like rain on that parade, but you think like, okay, that's great. And then you look at the state of black people in baseball. I think it's still one manager, Dusty Baker, who got hired like in a crisis, basically. Like, you know, Dusty obviously has the credentials, but then you think about like the way he was hired and it's like, would they have picked him if they weren't dealing with like a PR disaster and like, you know, players on the decline, executives, I think pretty much non-existent. So you like, it's just very fascinating to realize like, what progress is relative to like certain groups of people and how like even if Effa Manley was doing all this 80 years ago there's still a lot of things that need to be done today like the, the progress is never over essentially right right and Effa again like I can't I can't emphasize this enough Effa was able to do what she did because of the existence of the Negro Leagues so Again, when we, when you talk about and, and and when you get into when you get into the book, this is something that my editor and I like were really intentional about is weaving these narratives together. So it's not just a straight Effa Manley biography. There's lots of Effa in there. It's also a history of Black baseball. It's rise. It's fall. Um, we you know we pick up with players you know in the late 1800s um you know the moses fleetwood walkers and the bud fowlers and we fast forward and we get to rube foster creating this first you know successful league in 1920 the negro national league that was founded um in kansas city missouri and then we fast forward to the this kind of resurgence post depression uh where we see the second negro national league created mostly with east coast teams and then the negro american league comes in a few years later of Midwestern teams, Um, but it is important. That context is important because what I think we miss when we talk about Jackie Robinson and what happened in 1947 and his relationship with, with Branch Rickey, what we miss is the history of this institution of black baseball and what it created within the black community. And again, what we lost when it, when it was killed and it was absolutely killed. Branch Rickey going in, stealing players, not paying them, you know, the leagues on the whole refusing to consider, you know, black baseball. How can we integrate these leagues? Maybe they can become official minor league partners. So they develop the black players. We just ultimately bring them up to the majors and sign them when they're ready to go. When none of that happens, 
you lose the opportunity to have black coaches and black executives unless there's some really, really, you know, fantastic paradigm shift that considering American history in general rarely happens, right? So we have cut off the pipeline that existed. So you mentioned that, you know, why is that the only woman in, in, in the National Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, how many women have been able to build the careers? So if we're talking about how many black men are head coaches or black people in general are head coaches um, in Major League Baseball or how many are at these high executive level of level positions, how many are able to even get in the pipeline to work to that point? And we had that opportunity that the Negro Leagues was the training ground for that. They were training players. They were also training coaches. They were training executives. So when you kill the Negro Leagues, when you say we only want these hand-selected players, we only want Jackie, we only want Campy, we only want Don Newcomb, now you're also saying, well, here's who we don't want. We don't want your black coaches. We don't want your black executives. And so you fast forward, you know, 75 years and you can't have this conversation today about the lack of black people in all levels of baseball without going back to that. The way we've always done integration in this country has always been to the benefit of the white institution. We cherry pick a couple of deserving black people who will play nice in these hostile situations. And then we let the black institutions they came from fall to ruin. And we also, because of that, again, kill, demolish these, these pipelines, these, these, these safe spaces for black people to develop into the leaders that they would then need to be in these white institutions. And so it's so easy for white people to say, well, of course I'm not going to hire like where, Where's the talent pool? Like, again, to go back to like the conversations that are happening in country music right now. Where's the talent pool? I mean, I would love to hire, um, you know, a VP at my label where but I don't even know who's ready for that position. Well, they're not wrong because they cut off the pipeline. So, yeah, it just, you know, again, it's such a it's such a testament to the importance of the Negro Leagues. It's a testament to to the importance of Effa's work because she tried to avoid this. She tried to avoid all of this. If she was here in 2020, she would 100 percent say, I told you this was going to happen and I tried to stop it. <laughs> yeah, it is like I would encourage people to think a little more critically about Branch Rickey and like how all of that went down. Cause he obviously, I mean, he got the Harrison Ford treatment. Like he's the one yes. that people know, you know, <laughs> right? like, like if, if Harrison Ford plays you, you're a good guy. Like that is right. Yes. <laughs> well, and I think it's so easy for the media and for consumers of that media to think, Oh, he was the first person to sign a black player in the major leagues. He must've been great. And like, that is great. Don't get me wrong. Like it's important that Jackie Robinson played in the big leagues. But like you said, you have to consider, you know, all of the domino effects from that. It was kind of the original, like, well, you got to hear both sides because you're not getting the full story when you just see that picture of him smiling, signing Jackie Robinson. He's probably thinking in his head, like, ah, oh, there goes the, the Negro Leagues. I've killed it. Exactly. Exactly. And if we, I mean, if this was a conversation that we were having in 1950 or 1960, there would have been enough of those voices around and enough of those people who really saw what was happening in real time to say, Okay, wait a minute. There's two sides to this thing. Like, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about it. But when you come as far as we have, we're in 2020 now. You know, a lot of those original players are gone. What we're left with is other people's interpretation of the events. And we know that he who controls the pen controls history. So we have been told what to think about Branch Rickey. And so now, not only do you have to think critically, you kind of also have to say, you have to walk into these situations saying, well, what if everything I've been taught was a lie? And I think we've seen that, again, in these larger you know, conversations that we're having this year around social, social justice in general. I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, the New York Times bestsellers list, like let's do this blackout, let's get people to read these books on anti-racism and white supremacy and all those kinds of things. And for a lot of people, it has been that lifting of the veil that like, okay, what if all of this was a lie? So when we talk about baseball, I think a lot of people who don't know this story, and that is a lot of people, have to be willing to do that. What if everything was a lie? 
Yeah. I and think now I got to go imp- back to the beginning and now I got to start all over and now I got to really, 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 because you can't think critically. It's, I mean, again, it's, it's hard to look at 2020 and what it looks like now and even say, like, let's have a critical thinking moment. Like when people talk, oh, well, you know, maybe we need to go into the inner cities and like do some baseball programs in the inner cities. If you are not going backwards, if you don't understand the past, you can't understand the today or the tomorrow. Right. And I think, too, it becomes very easy then. Like once people realize like, oh, I need to do something, then it's really easy for it to become like a very like Mickey Mouse kind of Disney moment where you do one thing and you make it all like, oh, my God, look at all this this great work we've done, you know, without really thinking about like, are you doing it performatively? Are you doing it just because you feel like you have to like there needs to be a whole other conversation about like the motives and making sure that you're doing it for the right reasons, which is kind of back to that whole branch Ricky thing all over again. Right. And then you, you, you get an understanding really quickly about people who are serious about doing the work versus, you know, doing these performative actions, because when you understand the magnitude of the work, like it's like, if you want to lose 50 pounds and you're like, okay, I want to go see a nutritionist and I want somebody to tell me how to lose 50 pounds in two months. They're going to be like, it's ridiculous. How long did it take you to gain those 50 pounds? <laughs> that level of what, you know, the, the effort that it took to gain that is the same effort that you're going to have to put in to lose the weight. You gained it, you know, over two or three years slowly by just making all these tiny decisions daily that's how you're gonna have to lose it too so if we're talking about undoing these systems we have to have the same intentionality that was there when they put the systems in place this wasn't an accidental performative thing you don't cut black people out on accident this is like embedded in these systems like level by level decision after decision it plays out over multiple years that's what it's going to take to undo this stuff. It's not a book you read. It's not a nonprofit program that you start, you know, in inner city Chicago and throw a couple base, throw a couple black kids on a baseball field. Like this is this is real work. And so when you start talking about that, you can quickly divide the people who are serious and the people who are not. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that. So with Effa specifically, was she someone you'd been wanting to write about for a while? And then like, you know, like you mentioned, the increased conversations about race relations in this country come up kind of right as the book is on its way to publishing. So was that a coincidence? Because you mentioned that the book had been pretty done by the time that the pandemic and then the protests this summer started popping off. So like, did you think that was just kind of like kismet or like what was when you like realized that you were writing a book about effa manley at a time when america was focused on race more than they have been in a while like what are your thoughts as that's all unfolding in front of you yeah i mean i'm black so i feel like this these issues are always there um but i would definitely say that like my publisher is excited about it for sure. Um, uh, you know, this idea that we can, you know, definitely sell more books now that people are having these conversations, you know, in within publishing, within the kid lit space, there is a push for, you know, not just books about, you know, that, that, that highlight untold stories or, you know, figures who wouldn't normally get um, a full, you know, biographical treatment, but also that they come from the communities represented in the pages. So that had been happening for a while. Um, if I'm to be completely honest, like I feel like F has been sitting on my shoulder for like, I left the I left the museum in like 2007. So what, like 13 years? She's been sitting on my shoulder that whole time. Like, when are you gonna write the book? Like, when are you gonna write the book? <laughs> so I am late to this party, but I guess I got here right on time. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter when you get in as long as you're in there. And I feel like, too, like with your specific situation, it's like you have working for the Negro Leagues Museum gives you such an interesting perspective and probably a little more of a foundational knowledge base than other people. So like with that in mind, you don't want to like rush it. You know what I mean? Like it's not like, oh, my God, I'm done at the museum. Let me get this book off right now. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Like I don't even think um, I mean, I was just, you know, shortly after I left the museum, started, you know, freelancing as a journalist. But like, I mean, writing a book is such a daunting thing. And I think, I mean, I had to get through years of just like, I don't know if I can do it. Then, you know, I'd kind of segged into ghostwriting. Um, so basically helping other people tell their story. So then it was a whole other mountain to get over in this, you know, with this idea that like I can write my own book. So there's been lots of hurdles throughout this process. Um, you know, not, not, necessarily because of like ability or talent, but just, you know, the imposter syndrome syndrome that we all deal with at some point, I think. 
Um, but yeah, I definitely, it is definitely an exciting moment. Even being pushed to January is kind of cool. My editor is like, look, we'll be, we'll be right in front of Black History Month in February. We'll be right in front of Women's History Month in March. And then hopefully we'll get a new baseball season, you know, starting on time in April. And then this June represents the 15th anniversary. June of 21 is the 15th anniversary of her induction. And along with, um, I want to say it was 26 people total in that class. Um, I was actually at the museum in 2006 when the Hall of Fame put together the special committee um, to really dig back in and see, okay, who else have we missed? You know, again, it's white on all levels of this thing, right? It takes Ted Williams getting up during his Hall of Fame speech and saying, look, Satchel Paige should be here. Like, this is ridiculous. So, but even then, you know, when you start saying, okay, well, I know Satch, I know Josh, like these people get in, but we're already so far removed from, again, you know, Moses Fleetwood Walker and Bud Fowler and those guys that were playing in the late late 1800s, those guys that were playing in the years before Rube Foster started the Negro National League. I mean, Rube Foster, many people don't know, was a great pitcher, a great athlete himself. Um, He just went on to, to found... Uh, the Negro National League and became more known as an executive. But there were lots of, of players that had missed that window. So, and, and to the larger point, to, to EFA, uh, players, coaches, and executives. So in 2006, there was, there was this push, there was this special induction uh, with over 20 uh, black players, coaches, and executives from the era of, of segregated baseball and Ethel was included in that class. And so we get to celebrate her again in, in 2021. So timeline wise, um, you know, it all it all works together. Yeah. And so you mentioned something that I wanted to ask you about, which is like, you know, the Negro League legends that the casual fan knows, like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, all those people. They are obviously much more known than Effa Manley, even if Effa has sort of the the aura around her from being the only woman in the Hall of Fame. Um, so what do you think it will take for America to like bring that same energy for her as they do her male counterparts? Is it just more knowledge, like, you know, more books, people educating themselves, people like seeking it out? Or do you think that there's like a larger problem that needs to be addressed or both, I guess? Yeah, um, I think it's both. I think definitely, um, you know, people should seek the knowledge, but it's, it's a difficult thing because, again, you kind of have to to suspend like your normal way of thinking a little bit because you have to ensure that you're getting your, sorry, your information from the right sources from people who, you know, are giving, are giving this history a fair treatment that are not telling it through their white lens. Um, But ultimately it's going to come with, you know, baseball, with major league baseball, with these larger entities being honest about our history. When we, you know, there was a, there was a segment on um, real sports on HBO uh, with this being the centennial of that founding of the first Negro league, Negro national league by Rube Foster. Um, There was a real sports segment um, featuring Larry Lester and he's, he's done such great work documenting and like going through these these newspaper archives and pulling together these stats and showing that the Negro League players really operated on a level comparable to what Major League Baseball was doing. And that's important because in Major League Baseball's eyes, the Negro Leagues, when they are acknowledged, they are acknowledged as kind of like this other thing, like this kind of second class, like B-level minor league thing. And so when you do that, it ensures that people who played before the era of integration don't get in the history books at all. And so when you don't have these people, uh, you know, in, in the history books, in the stat records, well then, yeah, why would we talk about F. Manley? We don't even really acknowledge the Negro Leagues as these, you know, real professional operations. So there's, again, the intentionality in exclusion has to be there when we talk about inclusion, when we talk about recognizing and honoring these people who came before and did such incredible work during such a difficult time. Yeah, so I guess then my next question would be like EFA specific and how much you knew about her heading into this process and then some interesting things that you learned that you hadn't known before. Like what was, I guess, first question is how much do you feel like you knew about Effa when you started writing this book? And then how much did that sort of like transform into, Oh my God, there's so much to even that. Like I was completely unaware of. 
Yeah, I knew quite a bit just because I was really obsessed with her when I was at the museum. So I knew quite okay. a bit. Um, we had a copy of her memoir that she wrote um, a couple years before she died. And I'd read that. So I knew, you know, pretty well, like how involved she'd been um, in running her team, helping to run the Negro National League, even though she never officially had a title because her husband, Abe, had the title. Um, so I knew... I knew that. I don't think I knew how much she pushed back against um, not integration, um, just in integration, not in theory, but in practice in the way Branch Rickey did it. So she was again, she really understood what what the black community, what black, black baseball was up against if things continued on the path that Branch Rickey laid forth. So it was really interesting to get in and to see these conversations, this back and forth. And she had a back and forth with, with um, you know, Jackie Robinson. She said some things about Jackie Robinson in the media because in 1948, you know, he comes out and completely trashes black baseball in Ebony Magazine. And she's like, wait a minute, you ungrateful child. Like, what are you doing? Like, it is because of black baseball that you are playing now with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Like, it is only because of that. So she definitely was outspoken in a way. Like, I think, you know, there's always this conversation about, like, who would be great on Twitter if they, you know, had been alive when Twitter was a thing. I think she'd be incredible. I think even if she wasn't tweeting, she'd be trending so much just because of the things that she said and the way that she really operated without a filter. Like she just said what she thought and was really such a straight shooter. I think that that would be incredible. I think we'd be talking about that today. Um, but the fact that she was that person in, in the thirties and forties is just tremendous. So I kind of understood that, but like really digging in and seeing her in action, um, recreating that through through newspaper articles and, and archives and things like that was, you know, her letters. Um, yeah, all of that was like really, really fun to see. And it's so like this is all completely related to what you were saying earlier, but like how history is only coming from one specific outlet or like they you only hear the stuff you want to hear. Like Major right. League Baseball tries so hard and they succeed at the most part for like making Jackie Robinson seem completely bulletproof, like nothing. He didn't, didn't do anything wrong. Like he is this savior. Like, you know, he came in and changed everything, which he did. Like, you know, the, Jackie Robinson is very important, but you would never hear about the like the fact that he trashed black baseball. Like that's something that Major League Baseball would never, ever, 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 ever want to get out. And then you have someone like Effa who's like calling him out for it. And that's amazing. But like you were saying, you never hear about it because it only gets, you know, only one side of it gets reported. Right. Right. You don't you don't hear that that I'm sorry that Jackie Robinson trashed back black baseball. You also don't hear that by the you know, not it didn't even take to the end of his life. But, you know, his his second memoir, I never had it made that was published the year that he died. I mean, he's had a complete transformation and we 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 rarely give historical figures that opportunity. The, the Jackie Robinson that we celebrate, the 42 that everybody, every team has retired and everybody wears on Jackie Robinson Day. That is the Jackie Robinson that said, yes, I will turn the other cheek. Yes, I will let these people call me the N word and I will say nothing. That is who they're celebrating. That right. that that black player who was deemed worthy enough to come in and accept abuse in route to some, you know, uh, progress. And, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see because again, how does that really help us? It, we know how it helps the Dodgers. We know that they set attendance records that year. We know that they made more money. We know that, you know, he set them up to start winning pennants. We know that, that, that white baseball, these white institutions absolutely benefited from you know, black bring, bringing the few black players in that they did at the slow rate that they did. But how did it benefit us? We've always been taught that integration is this inherently good thing and it's good for everybody. But the way we've done it in this country has rarely, if ever, benefited black people. And we don't talk about that because that's not the Jackie Robinson they want us to know. Right. Yeah. It's so indicative of like Major League Baseball's thinking as a whole, the way they like selectively choose to ignore certain things. Because like you said, the 42, like everyone wearing the jersey is like, yes, we celebrate the man who, you know, basically chose to like kind of I, I don't know, like 
subvert some of his own morals, I would imagine, and just be like, yeah, I'll let these people just attack me because I'm doing this great thing for America and for baseball. I mean, like, And Major League Baseball today is kind of doing that same thing where they're like, look, we have Jackie Robinson Day. We're not racist. You know, like that whole thing of like, if we do one thing, that means that we're scot-free on every other issue. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, are you, this is completely unrelated, but I was just Googling as you were talking. Are you like a collector at all? Do you have any Newark Eagles merch or like a hat or a t-shirt or anything? I mean, I have a couple of things that like I've purchased. Like I had some stuff. I don't think we had any like Negro or I'm sorry, Newark Eagle specific stuff when I was at the museum. Um, but yeah, I'm not a collector though, by any stretch of the imagination. Gotcha. I was just curious because I'm looking at their logo and some of their jerseys and like it's so I like it's such an interesting aesthetic because it's so of a time, you know, all of it yeah. kind of looks like old like cigarette logos and that kind of yeah. thing where it's like if you covered up the word uh, Newark on the Eagles logo, it could totally be like Eagle cigarettes or like Eagle whiskey or something like that. Right. This is not like completely unrelated to anything we've been talking about. I was just curious. <laughs> no, I'm not mad at it. And I also wouldn't be mad like if we brought the throwback jersey back. Like I am, you know, I'm, I, I would not be mad at that at all for sure. Yeah, I guess it's tough for a team like Newark because there's no like immediate affiliation or connection. Like Kansas City, I feel like the Royals do at least one Negro League throwback every year. But for Newark, yeah. they're kind of just left out in the cold. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. All right, so we're going to get to a passage uh, from the book at the end of this episode. But I have a couple more questions before we get to that. Um, one of them is just kind of like a writer question, like little inside baseball kind of thing about mm -hmm. the writing process. Um, I just want to know, you mentioned how daunting it is to write a book and how much research goes into it and making sure you hit all of your marks and all that. So what was the hardest or most challenging thing about this entire process? Let our readers know like what it's really like to sit down and say, I'm going to write a whole freaking book. Oh gosh, it's horrible. Like I, <laughs> and this is like, and I always have like multiple projects going on at one time, but like writing, I mean, there are moments when it's great, when it's fun. And then you're like two seconds later, it's like, oh gosh, this sucks again. But overall, the feeling of having the finished book is so great. It's like, you know, I remember like before I had kids, like asking my mom, like, well, how much does it hurt when you have a baby? And she's like, yeah, well, God makes sure that nobody really remembers or can really describe it. Otherwise, nobody would have kids. So <laughs> I think it's like that, like in the moment, you're always I, I mean, at least I am. I don't want to speak for any other writers, but every time like and I'm in that messy middle or I'm like I'm I'm so far in that I can't turn back but I'm still so far from the other side I'm like why do I do this to myself over and over again like willingly like I sign up for this um but then you know in the end it is always so worth it um but I would say honestly for this book the most difficult part was weaving together those two narratives that I mentioned before, Effa story with the history of, of black baseball with its rise and fall. Um, this book is really, I, I envisioned it for kids. I have, I have four kids. My oldest is 13. She reads voraciously, but doesn't, doesn't really like nonfiction. Um, we also talk a lot about, you know, these gaps in curriculum. And, you know, again, we're in this moment right now where people are having these conversations about, you know, America and how we've treated each other here. And I think to a large degree, a lot of what we are dealing with is people who like, you know, to your point about, well, why don't people know who FMLE is? I think we're dealing with adults 
Our world is being shaped by adults who don't. And this is me like glass half fooling the situation and saying, all right, yes, yeah, some of y'all are just evil and malicious. But also, I think there's a good a good number of people who just don't really know. They don't really understand our history, the way these things were set up. They didn't get the talks like black people get the talks like we know, like we can spot a white person a mile away. Like we know who's 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 really for us and who is not like white people just go through this world like because it is designed for white people um, not really understanding all that is happening below the surface all this intentionality and excluding certain people and building walls and all of that kind of stuff and so when you have these people who don't understand and then they're creating you know our policies or that are in leadership positions in you know baseball front offices or whatever um, we end up having to spend so much time just educating, just getting the history, just trying to get people to see us, to value us, to understand our perspective. So I'm like, well, what if we just talk to these kids early? <laughs> you know, what if, what if we help them understand early? I mean, I remember being in school and reading books, reading history textbooks about how like, oh, maybe slavery wasn't so bad. Like some, some slave owners were really nice. Like there's a lot to undo within the education system. And I am not an educator, but if I can create a book that is a compelling read that also starts to bridge some of these gaps, that also, again, helps people understand the world of yesterday so that they can better understand today and hopefully build us a better tomorrow, then, I mean, for me, that that is the ultimate end goal. So I didn't want to just write an F. Manley biography. I didn't want to just, you know place the reader in these exciting moments where, you know, F was pushing back against Branch Rickey or Jackie Robinson and, you know, fighting on behalf of her black team and her black league that she was a part of. I wanted to really set the stage so that by the time we get to that moment, this is not just some kind of throwaway thing that, oh, well, black baseball won't be able to operate after Jackie because, you know, in the end, it's great because shouldn't black players want to play Major League Baseball? I have set the stage so people understand how important these institutions are, what it took to get these institutions off the ground, the constant sacrifices that were made so that they can really see the full consequence of integration done Branch Rickey's way. So it was difficult, again, because... This is a book for, on paper, 10 to 14 year olds, even though I think, you know, there may be some kids younger that younger than that who can get into it. Um, I have an eight year old who is a sports junkie and I'm like, I need a report on this like the week it comes out. Um, but also, you know, I think I think it'll work well for adults. I think a lot of times when we're talking about history and going back and really understanding where we've come from, um, I think sports is a great microcosm for for racism in this country. And I think it's it's a it's a great way to study it. I think when we talk about the Negro Leagues specifically, it reveals so much. But I also understand that adults who are busy with jobs and kids and covid and all the things might not have time to read this like 500 page book on the Negro League. So this is like a really like bite sized like really good introductory primer into black baseball. But then there's also a lot of effort just because she was such an important character. So so yeah, how do you make all that work? You know, in one book, <laughs> how do you keep kids engaged? My goodness, like, again, like I've got kids and like, yeah, my daughter's like, what? This is a true story? You're kidding. So like making sure that it's a good read that also does all these other things in a not, you know, textbooky, preachy way. And that was another thing, too. Like, I think we, we, we say so much how, you know, we're so excited about future generations and, you know, these kids are the future and they're so smart and they're so, you know, they're so gifted. Well, if we really trust them like that, I don't think, at least again, I'll speak for me. I don't like to tell my kids what to think. I like to present all the information and see what they do with it. And again, I think, and this could be me, you know, maybe my glasses are a little rose colored right now, but I think that if people had all of the information at their disposal, there will be more people, not everybody, but there will be more people who would make better decisions. So even as I'm talking about all this and I have very clear thoughts and opinions, I, 
I don't need to say that Brian Tricky was a jerk and not the savior that people say he is. I'm going to lay it all out. This is the show, not tell, right? I'm going to lay it all out and then you decide. And then what do you do with that information now? What do you do with that information? So, so yeah, it was, it was a balancing act for sure. Totally. I feel like you and every writer, especially people who are sort of telling the story that people haven't heard before, you're trying to address that impossible question of like, how do people know what they don't know? Right. There's so much information out there that like is just completely it's not taught or it's completely like out of their, you know, field of knowledge that you're so like for Effa Manley specifically, you're introducing her, I'm sure, to a lot of people who have never heard the name. But then for people who are like only sort of tangentially aware, it's like, okay, what did you not know that I can then try to teach you without trying to make it preachy or like, you know, here's what you need to think about FO when you're done with this. Like, I'm, I think the intriguing part of writing a book about someone is presenting information in a way that doesn't seem like you are sort of in their pocket, you know, like obviously FO Manley didn't pay you to write this book, but like it can, there's people who write biographies that do come off that way where it's like oh did you like did the family tell you what to write you know that whole sort of thing yeah yeah and it's you know it's it's that you know how much context do people already have do kids already have how much context do I need to provide and so it's like if if I'm introducing Effa as this owner of the Newark Eagles, well, the Newark Eagles aren't around. So I got to explain what the Negro Newark Eagles are. And then I'm like, okay, well, it was a team in the Negro National League. Well, that's not around anymore either. So then I have to explain what that was. And then when I start to explain what that was, it's like, well, I don't understand. Like I know Major League Baseball, but like, what is this other thing? So there's like, a, there's a ton of setup. There's a ton of, a ton of backstory that has to be done that doesn't have to be done, you know, in a Branch Ricky book for instance, because we don't really, I don't have to spend time explaining what Major League Baseball was for you to understand, you know, who Branch Rickey was because we have so much current day context. We don't have any of that with the Negro Leagues. And yeah, I had to, I had to find a way to, 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 I, it was important for me. I mean, I guess I didn't have to, but I, again, um, with, with the ultimate goal for this book, I thought it was important to, to weave that in. Yeah, and for kids especially, where they're so impressionable and they're being taught the the things that the school district and the textbooks want them to learn. Like I remember exactly. being a kid, as soon as the term necessary evil was brought up in relation to slavery, I was like, wait a minute. You know, like that's when yeah. you start to question things. And it's important to have other sources that aren't just, you know, the standard issued textbook or the things that your teacher is getting paid to say. Like that's why it's so important to seek out information, which obviously, you know, as you know, a writer and a parent, like there's so many things that I think the, the rest of society has to fill in the cracks when it comes to learning. And if you're not actually trying to do that, then you are never going to even have the opportunity to do it. So like a book like this is perfect for people who think like, Oh, you know, I feel like I have a decent understanding of the Negro leagues or just race relations as a whole. Then it's like, well, maybe you didn't know any of this and it's going to introduce a whole new perspective to you. Like that's so important, not only right now, but forever. Like it's so important to get as much information as possible, especially about things that maybe are relevant to you in a way that you're trying to ignore the way that race relations are for so many white people. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this book, I mean, it is a hundred percent told from the black perspective. It is the black experience. It is all sides of it, right? Black people are not a monolith. We weren't a monolith in 1947. So there were a hundred percent. I mean, again, with, with Jackie Robinson coming out and, and saying these things in Ebony magazine, it, it reveals, it reveals the pretty and the ugly of all of that, of all of that. And it's not, you know, Branch Rickey's there. I mean, you can't talk about integration without, without Branch Rickey, but he is not a central character. Um, you know, Jackie Robinson in, in I Never Had It Made, he said that, you know, essentially, and this is a paraphrase that integration, the way it was done, it, it was, it was the Branch Rickey show. And he was just brought in as a performer as you know to play his part in it but it was never his story i mean we try to spin it that way but most of the time when we do it and these these white people that still tell it through the white lens we don't even get the full story so you're trying to tell branch ricky's story through Jack, jackie robinson's eyes and it just doesn't work like that so this is a story that is a hundred percent from that black experience 
Beautiful. Well, we covered everything that I wanted to ask you, so we might as well just get to the passage. People have probably been listening to this thinking like, oh, I want to read this book. I want to hear this information that she keeps talking about. So we can actually go ahead and do that right now. You've prepared a passage from the book that you want to read. Uh, I'll just lay out and let you sort of audio book it. And uh, hopefully people will be inspired to actually purchase the book after this. So whenever you're ready, you can go ahead and just start reading the passage that you've selected. Okay. All right. Clear my throat. No. As integration landed on baseball's doorstep ahead of the 1946 season, gathering a consensus on the right way to merge the worlds of white and black baseball was proving impossible. Like Griffith, Effa believed that the Negro League's contract should be respected and that owners of black teams should be compensated for their players. She also believed that the Negro League should be formally integrated into Major League Baseball as an official minor league partner, but none of the white baseball executives, including Griffith, were advocating for that. As it stood, the lens of integration became focused on opportunities for individual black players, not for entire black teams or leagues. And within the broader black community, seeing those players join the rosters of white teams in Major League Baseball was the ultimate best goal. For many in the black community, the Negro Leagues had passed the point of usefulness. All black teams and leagues were previously necessary but no longer ideal, not when the majors had finally eased open the door that had been bolted shut for so long. Whether black players should actually walk through that door was never questioned, neither did anyone consider what lay on the other side. The fact that the door opened at all was the unquestionable proof of progress. Nowhere was this more evident than in Jackie Robinson's journey from Negro League's rookie to Major League Barrier Breaker. The signing of his Dodgers contract was an historic moment, certainly, but it was also one that was fraught with tension, a sign of torturous things to come. Years after joining the Dodgers organization, Robinson recounted his first meeting with his future employer, detailing how Ricky lashed him with de degrading insults and described in horrific detail the abuse that Robinson was likely to face on the baseball field. Suppose I was at shortstop. Another player comes down from first, stealing, flying in with spikes high and cuts me on the leg. As I feel the blood running down my leg, the white player laughs in my face. How do you like that, nigger boy? He sneers. Could I turn the other cheek? I didn't know how I would do it, yet I knew that I must. Ricky used this exercise to make his expectations clear. Robinson was to be a model player and man, someone who could simply absorb all the criticisms and, indig and indignities that were sure to be hurled at him. Not only was R Robinson forbidden from retaliating, but he would also have to smile when he wanted to cry and apologize when he'd done nothing wrong. Through it all, Robinson was to remain grateful for his marvelous blessing while ignoring its accompanying curses. And he had to be perfect. Man, did he have to be perfect. There could be no missteps or wavering as Robinson's signing would be the country's first experiment with integration that had national implications. This was not a light-skinned, middle-class black woman in New York being hired alongside white women in a department store that had a predominantly black customer base. This was a man with deep brown skin joining a team with white men who, in most cases, had never even had a conversation with a black person, let alone a relationship yet they would be thrust together to train and play and live. And they would have to travel to cities that were far less open to racial equality, where fans would be just as likely to show up to root against Robinson as they would be to cheer for their home team. Indeed, as the 1940s gave way to the 50s and 60s, racial integration in America typically followed a similar pattern regardless of industry. After proving themselves sufficiently worthy, a few black people were hand-selected, ripped away from the safety and security of their communities, and allowed to enter all-white spaces. Once there, they ran straight into people who resented their presence and often retaliated with violence. Yet there was never any sacrifice required of white people, no demand that they, too, step outside of their comfort zones in the name of advancement. Even as their glass houses were shattered by the arrival of those whom they'd fought valiantly to keep out, whites still maintained the upper hand. Black people were sent crawling in through the back door, careful not to make a fuss. They were there to be seen and not heard, lest they be booted right back into the street. This was the standard to which Robinson had to adhere. It was what Branch Rickey demanded of him, but it was also what all of white America would require as well. 
Jackie Robinson was expected to turn the other cheek on the baseball diamond and black baseball executives were expected to do the same behind the closed doors of their team offices. But as integration threatened to bankrupt their businesses, EFA and some of the other owners refused to remain silent. In early November of 1945, EFA helped come Posey, owner of the Homestead Grays and secretary of the Negro National League, write a letter to Major League Baseball's new commissioner, Happy Chandler. Though EFA never held an official title within the Negro National League, Posey and the other man recognized her value and often relied on her expertise, and she was eager to lend a hand to this matter in particular. The tiff between EFA and Posey of years prior had long been brushed aside. The only thing that mattered in that moment was the preservation of black baseball. Writing on behalf of both the Negro National League and Negro American Leagues, Posey condemned the way Ricky had gone after Robinson and was continuing to poach black players. Aside from his refusal to compensate Negro League's teams for the contracts of their players, Ricky was bypassing team executives to speak directly with the players about joining his team, a policy that was unheard of in both black and white baseball. We feel that the clubs of organized Negro League baseball who have gone to so much expense to develop players and establish teams and leagues should be approached and deals made between clubs involved, even though Negro organized baseball is not a part of white organized baseball, Posey wrote. That is the only way in which we can be assured that Negro organized baseball can continue to operate. To close the letter, Posey invited Chandler to a Negro National League meeting that was scheduled for November 9th, 1945 in New York City. And with that, Ethel Posey and the other owners could only wait and hope. They hoped that Chandler would accept the invitation to the league meeting, and most important, they hoped that he would sympathize with the owners of black baseball teams. Meanwhile, as they awaited the commissioner's response, a letter of support from Washington Senators owner Clark Griffith imbued them with faith. Your two leagues have established a splendid reputation and now have the support and respect of the colored people all over the country as well as the decent white people. They have not pirated against organized baseball nor have they stolen anything from them and organized baseball has no moral right to take anything away from them without their consent. I understand that Mr. Ricky told Commissioner Chandler that Robinson was not under contract to the Kansas City Club, but whether he was or wasn't, he certainly made an agreement with the Kansas City Monarchs Club that he would play ball with them for so much per month. This in itself constitutes a contract, for had Kansas City failed to pay him, he could have gone to court and collected his salary. Mr. Posey, anything that is worthwhile is worth fighting for, so you folks should leave not a stone unturned to protect the existence of your two established Negro Leagues. Don't let anybody tear it down. It is my belief that the commissioner will give you relief. That's it. That was great. Thank you so much. I feel like that really, like, because we talked about all of these things, you know, and Jackie and Effa and how they're all related, and then to hear it sort of in book form was a perfect little bow to put on the end of this episode. So thank you so much for doing that. I hope that encourages people to buy the book. Um, and now as we're wrapping up, I want to give you a chance to not only plug the book, but plug whatever else um, you want to draw people's attention to. And I guess perhaps most importantly, let people know how they can purchase this book. Yeah. So I am on Twitter at Andrea Wilwright. That is a platform I'm probably most active on. Um, but the book, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues will be available January 5th. Uh, wherever books are sold. Um, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but if it is well before then, if you order from Parnassus Books in Nashville. So uh, let me pull up parnassusbooks.net forward slash Andrea Williams. That's P-A-R-N-A-S-S-U-S books.net forward slash Andrea Williams. You can pre-order it and I will sign and or personalize it for you. And that offer is good up until like January 4th, so the day it publishes. Um, But yes, please order the book. Please buy it for yourself and your kids and your your boss and your girlfriend and your boyfriend. Like all the people, all the people need the book. So 
All yeah. the racists in your life, get for them too. <laughs> All the racists, but not even like, I mean, I want black people to read this too. I did, I participated in um, Turner Sports during the playoffs, did a four-part documentary piece celebrating the Negro Leagues. And um, I took part in it and it was, it was a great experience. It was fun to, again, talk about these things that we don't talk about enough. But I made this comment in the last segment that, you know, White America doesn't mind if we want to be the next Satchel Paige or the next Josh Gibson, you know, the next LeBron, the next Steph Curry. But what if we want it to be the next Effa Manley? What if we want it to be the next Rube Foster? So I 100% want, want black kids and adults to read this too because I am of the firm belief that if we were able to accomplish these things in the 20s, 30s, 40s, what can we accomplish now? So much more. Yeah, you said it. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. It was a pleasure to have you. I do hope that this boosts your book sales through the roof and you become a world famous author. Um, and also to get Effa, Ma- Effa Manley the shine she deserves. So um, thank you for joining us, everyone who listened. Um, appreciate you as always. Please subscribe to this podcast if you feel so inclined. Like Andrea said, you can follow her on Twitter at Andrea Will Wright. I'm at mroberson22. And please continue to read Lookout Landing as well and follow all of our work on the site and on Twitter. Uh, any final thoughts, Andrea, before we let you go? No, I just, I thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been super fun. I will not be mad if you want to send me some Mariners tickets and appreciation. I mean, you know. If I had the power to do that, I would. But we do not get that many you. perks, unfortunately, as a lowly no. blog. Yeah, I hear you. But no, it's it's been great. Um, it's been it's been really fun, and I appreciate you you taking the time to talk to me about Effa and the Negro Leagues. Of course, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who listened. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.